right, what's up, y'all? Hoping y'all can see me all right. Shout out to uh, Artisan Grinch. What's going on? Hopefully, uh, get some people in here. See what's going on. So we got a few people watching. Getting in here for a minute. See what's going on here. What's good, y'all? Joe Average Brother, what's happening? Love me, Fro. For life, one deep one. What's going on? Uh, damn. I'm going to have to learn this part all over again. I want to give some people wrenches, but <laughs> I don't remember how. <laughs> so uh, definitely for Artisan and Grinch, I'll have to do that. We are up and running, BGS. What's good? Excess uh, Caliber. What's happening, y'all? This is going to be um, just a short little shout out, you know, a little hour. Um, wanted to drop some thoughts. Because um, um, Keepway Barber, what's going on? Uh, yeah, I hit that VGS, and it just uh, it just said put user in timeout or block user, and uh, I almost blocked Wrench trying to give him a wrench. <laughs> so, uh, all right, True Light, Barborn, what's going on? So, uh, so, what's up, Kendra? Thank you for coming through. So, I just wanted to drop a quick, quick little word. Um, because I had some, some, some things going on this week that really got me thinking. We started back, um, uh, at Fresno State, uh, this week. So, um, I gotta get up early and teach tomorrow. So, I still have to prep my classes and all that good stuff, but I definitely wanted to come back through. So cornbread, um, uh, come back through and say a few things real quick on this question of brotherhood. Um, cause it's been hitting me and I've been really pondering on it because of a number of things. Um, so I wanted to get started on a little bit of that. And as you guys know, when I do the Onyx Report, uh, you know, the radio show, I start out with some um, current events, uh, articles usually that I've kind of posted in social media that I think are fairly relevant. Um, this is a little bit along those lines, but they all kind of got me thinking. Um, I don't know if some of you guys, what's up, Ian? Um, Yousef, what's good? Um some of the things that got me thinking, I don't know if you guys saw the Abe and Preach video dealing with Young Jock, um, and they rightfully pointed out, uh, you know, how uh, Jock was treated when he was just working, paying bills, you know, and how he was perceived as, as having fallen off and whatnot, and the disrespect that kind of came with that. So, I, you know, that was one of the things that kind of hit me. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, and then there's this Richard Pryor series that apparently i think is abc did um the other day as a matter of fact i had not seen this It's apparently january 17th it is on youtube abc news and it really it, it's just a vulture piece to be honest with you it's a piece where 
people are still eating off his name. You know, you do. So what's going on? Um, and so I was looking at that. I'm like, okay, all right. I don't know where this is going, but I'm getting hit with these little kind of things here and there. Uh, there was the earthquake video on DJ Vlad where I was noticing the whole question of um, child support, how black men were treated, are perceived by some uh, to be basically um, government in many respects, uh, to be a form of welfare unto themselves, a, a sort of lottery. And so I'm kind of watching that. I'm like, okay. You know, I get hit with the article about the high school player, um, high school basketball player. What state was this in? This was uh, Utah, um, uh, where who was uh, basically uh, put in handcuffs for merely being at the game um, uh, or, you know, by the police. So I'm like, OK, you know, what's you know, again, I'm not sure where this is headed, but I'm just getting hit with very particular information. That's kind of got me going. The Mississippi brother who got 12 years for having a cell phone. Um, I'm like, OK. Hmm. And so as I'm starting to, in media too, I mean, I was watching Power and they're going hard in this last season. But one of the things I noticed most consistently is, um, you know, how through Ghost, black men are perceived through all these different figures. So anyway, all this stuff is hitting me and it's getting me thinking and it's making me remember things. The brother who got the, the young brother, high school student who got arrested, reminded me of me. You know, I'm, I can think of how many I, I run out of times thinking about how many police officers threw me over the hood of their, of their cars growing up uh, just for walking to school. You know, I used to have one cop who would literally follow me at least two or three times a week, follow me to school. And he would cruise as I walked. He would just cruise the car next to me. And then eventually he'd stop, get out, throw me over the hood, you know, pat me down, all of that. Wouldn't say anything. You know, um, so I thought about that. And that culminated once into uh, a point where um, right across the street from my high school, five cop cars came out of nowhere, screeched to a halt, pulled guns on me, drew me down, threw me on the ground. And basically they said I looked like I knocked over a Domino's pizza three cities over two weeks prior, you know, whatever. So I think about these things, you know, and I'm just like, OK, you know, this these are things that black men are, you know, we're very familiar with this ain't new by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and we haven't even really, you know, I haven't even gotten real deep into it. And as I'm asking these questions, I'm, you know, I, I sense the pushback from people, even YouTube, like <laughs> they denied me monetization for whatever reason. Anyway, I, I don't care at the end of the day, it, it, all of this in terms of brotherhood, what it got me thinking about is, is the necessity of it. Because at the end of the day, one of the things I learned from being thrown on the concrete to, you know, graduate school and sitting in these classes and listening to people talk about black men in all kinds of ways. One of the things that definitely taught me is that nobody's coming for us. You know, nobody nobody's coming for black men. There's no there's no rescue. There's nobody coming in to say this is unjust. It's not happening. If it hasn't happened already, it's not about to. Uh, right, unreasonable band. We tend to fit the description always. Um, and and I just was like, you know, at the end of the day, um, we have to actually be there for ourselves. But the question I thought about was, well, first, before we can assume brotherhood, I need to ask, does it even exist? You know, because I see so much, you know, debate and argument and, and really just not even debate. That wouldn't be a problem, but really just uh the tearing down of one another that um, I, I had to ask, does this even exist? So I thought today I would talk a little bit about that and I would back up a little and talk about why I do the work that I do and how I kind of came to that. Um, and for me, it really kind of started, um, you know, in graduate school, uh, because, again, sitting in those classes, especially the gender studies classes and learning about, you know, women and feminism and black feminism in particular. Um, the perspective on black men was that we were always the cause or, you know, we were on par with white men in, in certain respects as being these oppressive, um, these oppressive beings that, you know, uh, exploited our community and so on and so forth. And so sitting in classes where I'm hearing this and yet, not seeing, you know, black men 
like myself even teaching these classes, it, it really got me, you know, a little suspect. And I used to kind of ask questions that, you know, people would refuse to answer. I mean, I remember sitting in a class covering on slavery and I asked about black male rape. And this is probably 2004, 2005. And people just looked at me. You know, the, the class looked at me. And, you know, the only thing that anybody said, one of the it was two professors teaching it. One of the professors asked me, well, why would you even ask that question? You know, now now we have the work of people like Tommy Curry and Thomas Foster that are actually putting information out about black male rape going back to slavery. But at the time it was viewed as, you know, some kind of weird sexual question. But for me, it, it was a curiosity about the intricacies of what black men experience that seemed like nobody really wanted to talk about. So that's when the questions started to come for me. And um, when I started to teaching at Fresno State, this is my 11th year there. I've been teaching for 21 years now at the grad at the, the university level, but I started teaching here at Fresno State 11 years ago. And at the time, my focus was on hip hop. Right. Um, matter of fact, my first book uh, I, I wrote about was a hip hop text, and I tried to deal with black men, but um, at the end of the day, I didn't know how because the only training I had as far as gender was on feminism. So I'd only learned how to see black men through the eyes of feminists. And when I decided not to approach it from that vantage point, I honestly did not know how exactly to write about black males in any other way. As a matter of fact, my first book, which I actually wrote on the playground, uh, taking my son to the playground after my, after my wife passed, I wrote it on my iPad. Uh, there's a chapter in there, you know, there's two, a couple chapters on gender. It's all black women. And the very last chapter on black men is like a page. It's like, <laughs> I didn't know how to write on black men. Um, you know, so at the end of the day, when I got to that and I started to ask those questions, I'm teaching, uh, I started teaching the black male class here at Fresno State and I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to go about it. And most of the time I just repeated what I'd learned in grad school, which meant that I just shamed the black men in the room for not, you know, really going out their way to please black women. You're right, Yusef. The conditioning was real for real. What's up, Tarian? Um, let's see BGS in the chat killing it. Uh, yeah, Bearborn, we're going to get to that because you want it. You, you know what I'm going with this. Um, anyway, so what ended up happening is since I was, hip hop was my initial focus, I used to bring classic artists to Fresno State, which is pretty hard to do because Fresno is in central California, We're like three and a half hours from LA, three and a half hours from San Francisco and Oakland. So you don't come to Fresno accidentally. You, you, you come with an intention or you don't come at all, which is what most people do. They don't come at all. So getting classic artists here was a little difficult, but it worked. You know, I brought KRS-One, I brought, um, you know, Chuck D, Public Enemy. Uh, some of those videos you can see on YouTube. I brought, I brought um, Cool Mo D. Um, uh, there's a number of artists that I managed to bring, and they gave lectures, they performed, they did interviews, and much of the time they'd even sit down with my students in the classroom and talk to them. Um, and so that really, you know, was kind of how I approached it. And one of the most supportive artists that I brought was Brother Jay from the group X-Clan. I actually brought him a couple of times. Um, and Brother Jay was powerful, you know, good brother. And um, this was an opportunity for me to bring my heroes out because these were the artists that were big when I was leaving, was in high school and early college. So to have, you know, X-Clan sleeping in my living room, you know, when I brought them to speak was a huge honor for me. You know what I mean? So I brought Brother Jay out. And how the black male class started was uh, I had Brother Jay over. I had a couple students over, a couple brothers. Uh, they were freshmen, and we were watching uh, a film. We were watching, um, oh, goodness, what's the name? Tim Alexander's piece on uh, a Diary of a Tired Black Man. That's what we were watching. And we were enjoying the flick and we you know i started to listen to the two freshmen's talking and they started talking about sex and at some point you know they were talking about how they've had women you know pressure them to perform these acts of sex that you know were very you know might be construed as rape but the way they were talking about it 
they weren't saying they were raping women. They were saying they were having young women ask them to perform that. And I was like, wow, you know, and I noticed that, you know, when we started to talk to them, they didn't know the lines between what was legal and illegal in terms of what they might get caught up for. So I said, you know what? I need to start a support group of some type. But I knew I couldn't get the average student, you know, to do homework outside of a class. So I ended up creating two separate things. I created a group for black males outside of class where we had a closed door conversation about what it means to be a black male and what life is like. And I say closed door because, you know, only black males were allowed and there were no titles. There was no hierarchy. It was just black men talking to black men. Uh, that was the first thing. And then I created the black male class. Um, and that way we could deal with things, you know, more from an academic standpoint. And so those two things went at the same time. And the first few years of that were, was me, you know, getting my footing in terms of how to teach this material and, and what was going on with black males. Uh, and so I started a blog, uh, that some of you may have had a chance to check out, uh, new black masculinities.wordpress.com. And initially what I used it for is, is for homework. Students had to do a project where they interviewed a 45-year-old black male or a black male over 40, I think it was. They had to interview one and they had to be able to describe the role he played in family, the role he played in society, what kind of work he did and what his background was. What's up, Charles? Uh, good to have you in the house. Um, uh, nameless protagonist, what's going on? Um, Okay. Uh, Yusef, can polar bear swing on vines? It's real talk. <laughs> As exactly uh, Brother Jay for real. But anyway, um, so that used to be the, that's the reason I started the blog was actually for students to post publicly about black men that they'd researched. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And then from there, um, Heavy D died. And for some reason that hit me. Uh, I always liked Heavy D, but I couldn't necessarily tell you why that hit me the way it did. I think the most I could say was I think Heavy always struck me as a fairly progressive, good hearted brother. And for him to die as young as he did, um, it moved me. You know, um, it moved me uh, to 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 actually you know, see to have known that he died and to appreciate the role he played in hip hop. I mean, I loved, I liked his music, but that really wasn't it. It was, it was more who he kind of represented, represented himself to be. And so that's when I actually started writing about black men and doing movie reviews and so on and so forth. It took the death of Heavy D to kind of get me going in that direction. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to say in some kind of way to black men is that um, I didn't know how to do it. And I was concerned about being direct, but I wanted to say, man, we're not, we're not these walking criminals that people think we are. We're not walking sperm banks. We're not success objects. We're not walking phalluses. We're not at walking ATM machines, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers only to be used and pulled off the shelf at other people's whim. We're not all of these things, right? Um, I wanted to actually find a way to communicate that and do it in a manner that could be backed up academically. Um, that's around the time I met Dr. Tommy Curry and he was, he had been doing his work already on black men. So it, what ended up happening is you have these individual brothers in the academy who are interested in doing work on black men, but are very, very concerned. And in some instances, straight out afraid to say something that might be critical of black women, might be critical of feminism. They're worried about what may happen. Um, Tommy and myself happened to be two who had tenure. So, you know, we could have certain conversations, but I still was kind of finding my footing as to how. Um, so those conversations with Tommy and a couple other brothers really began to help me shape a perspective about what to talk about and why and why it was important. And so that brotherhood already began to help. Um, and that included Dr. Ronald Neal, who some of you guys have seen or heard on my on, on my other show. Uh, all of that really began to help frame um, what was going on. But I knew also at the same time that 
male only spaces were kind of being diminished, right? You know, they they were kind of being broken down. Even the barbershop is becoming a half barbershop, half salon. So the spaces for black males to talk began began to be, at least in person, they began to break down. And it was really, as you guys know, social media, YouTube, that began to be the space uh, where we could actually have those kind of conversations. And so, uh, what's up, Zakia? I see you here. Um, Richard Victor, Victor Dixon, what's going on? Um, let me see. So we began to be able to have these kind of spaces where we can have certain conversations. Obafemi, what's going on, good brother? Um, and it began to be important because there were things that would happen that you know I didn't have anyone to ask, really. Um, like I'll give you an example. Once I got my doctorate, between then and now, I've been approached by three women who have asked if um, I will sire their child. And I was offered a contract where they promised to not take me in for child support. Matter of fact, the very first one was someone I hadn't seen in 15 years who called me out the blue and just asked me, you know, I hadn't talked to her in 15 years and just asked. I didn't have anyone to ask questions about what was going on in the world, what was happening to where this was going, this, you know, this, these kind of requests um, would come through. And so the kind of spaces that I think we need to be able to have those conversations, I was discovering were happening online, but not necessarily in person the way I would have hoped. And so one of the things that it ended up, ended up happening is I began to develop certain ways to um, understand the world. I'm trying to bring this in. Some of you may have seen this. Okay. Just when I learned something now, I got to, there we go. Let me share screen. Okay. Let's see if that works. Okay. So I think you guys see it, but it's not the right size. There we go. So um, I ended up creating this. What's up, Dr. Curry? I don't even know what time it is where you are, man. Good to see you drop through, man. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, we get, we definitely got Tommy Curry in the house. That's what's up. Um, Tommy definitely uh, opened me up to some hope, some new ideas that I definitely appreciate. He was one of the reasons um, that I really began to appreciate uh, empiricism. Um. No, nah, that's definitely Tommy BGS. Uh, he's one of the reasons that I began to appreciate empiricism. He showed me how that kind of how that could be used, how that could be accessed uh, in defense of black men. Uh, appreciate the support, man. Uh, good to see you. I was just talking about the role you played in, um, you know, and in, in, in kind of us coming together in a certain way. Um, and so it led me to developing this concept of black masculinism. Some of you may have seen this up on the blog. Um, and it is how, you know, I began to kind of frame things. So Dr. Curry was pushing black male studies, which I was in complete agreement with, and I began to develop black masculinism. And I was hoping that the two would work together inside and outside of the academy uh, to really generate a new conversation about black men, right? A conversation where we could actually begin to frame black men outside the stereotypes and assumptions that people made about who we are and what we are and what role we play in families and in society as, as large at large. And much of the time what we found ourselves, you know, constantly battling back against is stereotype. Constantly and 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 the thing about it is it's one thing to battle stereotype on blogs. It's a whole nother thing to battle stereotype in graduate school classes, right? And so I started to use the blog to put out charts, to put out you know, cited information, to put out data that could be used. And I did that especially for graduate students who were having a difficult time being able to reference Black masculinity outside of the popular tropes. So um, definitely, Tommy, a lot of hatred in the academy, and it's still going. Uh, your book has definitely kicked in, you know, some space around for us, but it's still hard gr ground going. And you already know if you're talking to graduate black black male graduate students, um, sometimes they're under threat 
if they reference, you know, work like ours, or if they reference, you know, anything that's that that empirically grapples in, with some of these stereotypes in defense of black men, or black faculty that don't have tenure, they tend to, you know, find themselves under fire with little protection, simply because they're going against these tropes. And so the, the importance of, of Tommy's book, any published work uh, that's black masculinist in orientation, you know, defends black male studies is an uphill battle because there are so many people that don't want to hear it and I, that are so comfortable with these assumptions about us that they have those assumptions have to stand in for truth. They're not willing to you know, engage it otherwise. And so, you know, I, I tried to create um, black masculinism in an effort to uh, provide another layer of protection, a rationale for why you might study black men in the way we do, um, you know, in order to, to provide an ideological kind of umbrella, you know, and that's under phallicism, that's under the man not, and thanks BGS for putting that in the, in the, in the comment section so people can check it out. If you don't have the man not, definitely pick it up. Also pick up Thomas Foster's um, um, newest book, Rethinking Rufus, dealing with black men during slavery. Check those out because this is a beginning and developing field. And for those of you that you know are, are not aware, it's a field that on, that that's only formal representation is through Tommy Curry in Edinburgh. Right. So what it actually takes to talk about black men credibly is you have to have you have to leave the country in order to establish the framework to do that. So anyway, that being said, that though this was kind of the ground for you know, how this discussion on my part kind of came about, you know, I kind of came to it slowly and I came through it through feminism, right? And, and and seeing the contradictions of black feminism and the difficulty with assessing men in any kind of realistic way outside of tropes, you know what I mean? So if, I think I've said this before, one example would be in a graduate course I had, they brought in a woman, a black woman who had been raped. And she came into class and she talked about being raped and she talked about how bad it was. And then the class kind of shamed the black men in the room. And that was the conversation about rape in the black community. No statistics, no data, no referencing to tables or any credible information, no questions whatsoever about whether black men experienced rape at all or whether it was even possible for black men to be raped other than outside of prison. Because that would be the common go-to, right? And that was how a lot of this was thought about and talked about. Uh, for the most part, it was dismissed. It was is considered a joke. It was laughed at, and that was kind of it. And so, I think at that point, what I was interested in doing was was seeing how we could have a different kind of conversation and what that can mean. Um, and and so that began to you know kind of push my work in different ways. Um, and I'm still growing and developing. It's just a matter of getting some of the stuff I've written actually publicized. But, you know, I came to the question of brotherhood after looking and feeling these different experiences and trying to make sense of them um, and what they meant. And when I thought about this brotherhood that, that's been on my mind and the necessity of it, especially in the last year where I've seen, you know, um, brothers just continue to be under assault. Um, Tommy say, yeah, and this is despite black men experiencing high rates of higher rates of con of contact sexual violence than most women. Exactly, um, that was not something that I had ever imagined in graduate school. I never imagined that at all at being a possibility. And why would you? Because if these people you respect, who are trained, you know, scholars, could ignore that entirely, you, you know, especially if you know, and this is something you even see with people like Mark Anthony Neal. You, you read his book. Uh, New black man, uh, black man, the relationship between many black men and these feminist professors was almost very right. So you can't imagine that these matronly mother, you know, you know, scholars who have decades in the field and research and they're black feminists. You can't imagine that they would sidestep some of the information pertinent to you. You know what I mean? I met a brother at a conference once who was given a present presentation. He was actually he was a gay brother giving a presentation on the rates at, a, and this was at a male conference. This is the conference that you, uh, you and my other boys stood me up on and left me at Tommy. Uh, it was American masculinity conference and it was a gay brother who was doing his master's degree and he was giving a presentation on HIV rates for black women. And I had to pull him aside and I, you know, asked him if he knew anything about the HIV rates for black gay men. He said, no. 
He said he'd been working on his degree in black gender studies since undergrad and nobody had ever kind of talked to him about that. So I showed him a couple of charts and he started crying. And the reason he started crying for those who don't know is the primary chart I showed him was that at you know it was projecting that basically one out of two black males would, would uh, contract HIV. And nobody had ever told him that. And that was one of the most, it, it, for me, it was a jarring moment because I'm watching this man in tears about something that should have been common information, but nobody had bothered to ever tell him. And this was going on, I think, for black men in general, not just you know him, of course. So anyway, these, these are the kind of conversations that I think um, forced me to kind of ask some different questions and move more and more in a different direction. Now, as far as brotherhood is concerned, um, I think we have it in silos. We have it in small sections. Um, and I, I can give you some brief experiences from my own life. I generally don't, you know, get personal a whole lot. I, I like to keep this, you know, professional, keep it empirical. But um, I do think it's important, you know, in instances to kind of share some things. Um, I've definitely experienced true brotherhood on a couple of different, a number of different occasions in my life um, with some very close friends. You know, um, one example would be uh, my boy, Mark. Um Mark was, we, he and I went to undergrad together. We're still friends to this day. Um, my sister called him and told him when my wife passed. Um, Mark was coming home from the liquor store and he was walking up the stairs to go into his house when my sister told him. He turned around, got in his car. He's in Long Beach. So he drove three and a half hours out to Fresno. No clothes no planning. He just, you know, he had what he had in his hand from the liquor store, jumped in the car, drove straight out here and stayed with me for two weeks, just helping me get everything in order. He didn't leave until my wife was in the, it was, 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 uh, you know, we had had the ceremony and everything, it, it, you know, it is situations like that. Um, when I bought this house, as a matter of fact, it was, it was a brother who I went to who didn't even live in Fresno that facilitated the entire arrangement. And as a matter of fact, as a gift, you know, um, he actually, he and, and a, a colleague of his put the, the down payment on the house for me um, as a gift, right? Um, Tommy himself, um, you know, the conversations we've had, countless conversations on black men and the information that he shared. Uh, BGS, you know, who I've interrupted on many a day just to call and say, man, help me work this idea through. These are the kind of things that I notice about brotherhood, but I notice again that it's very siloed. And I and the question I asked is, you know, can we can we expand and talk about brotherhood beyond just the scope of a one-on-one -on -one dynamic? Is there a way to have a conversation about brotherhood that extends beyond that? Because part of part of what we experience is that we're raised in a way as many men in the West are to compete. And to compete and dominate in competition is where we find our sense of value. And we're appreciated in terms of that value on those terms. But there's a point where competition has to take a second or a backseat to collective, to a collective of some sort. And I'm asking the question, can we begin to have that conversation? Does that level of brotherhood exist? Right. I do believe brotherhood exists. But the question is, can we move beyond the siloed brotherhood? I mean, do we have to, you know, I, again, the men I'm giving you examples, but I've had relationships with them for years. Is there a way to broaden that? Right. Is there a way to broaden that to where we can develop beyond that? Um, I went to go check out uh, what's the, the bad boys three, you know, and I was watching and had the same exact question because uh, there was a moment in there where they actually, you know, said to each other, I love you. Now, I have no problem saying that to my brothers, but in 2020, I'm still seeing brothers that, that can't say I love you to their boys who've been there for years. I'm saying there has to be a way uh, where we can move to that degree and develop a, a, a code, develop a connection and develop an overarching sense of connection with one another toward a particular goal. And I'm wondering if that can be done. I believe it can, but... Um, I'd like to see it. And I'm curious if, especially the kind of brothers that are coming in here uh, into the chat, 
um, would be willing to engage that conversation with me, because I think that brotherhood needs to happen. Needs to happen, right? It definitely needs to happen uh, because it's it's definitely time, and it's time more than anything else because nobody else is coming now. I think I mentioned this. Those who didn't catch the, I did a show last night, which is a part two to my last week discussion with uh, a good friend of mine, Sarah. Uh, we were having a conversation about black men and redefining happiness. And I went on his show last night, um, which I think he'll be posting on, um, on, on YouTube. So I'll try and get the word out when I know where he puts it. Um, but we were having a conversation and I was sharing with him that I had spoken to a young man in high school, freshman year of high school. And he was saying amongst them, they were checking out of even attempting relationships with young women their age, checking out entirely, not even interested, not even attempting. He said that, you know, the attitudes, the behavior, the, um, you know, the kind of, um, you know, rudeness. He was like, they're just checking out altogether. But they also didn't have older men that were, you know, talking to them. You know what I mean? And so it, it for me, raises the question is, can we have a, a you know, a transgenerational, trans class uh, aesthetic or brotherhood that we develop where we can actually begin to build? Because I think we're doing so in small circles. I think we're doing so individually. Right. But black men have a different way of approaching things. Um, and we just need to kind of tighten the reins and actually set up a network. So these are the kind of questions that I think we got, we have to entertain because there's so much happening with black men that to not do so, I think, um, is contributing to the decline that um, has been going on for years in regard to the quality of life of many black men. Uh, individually, some of us are, are doing better than others. And I'm not even just talking financially, just in terms of having a peaceful quality of life that doesn't have to result in constant day-to-day -day chaos. I mean, some of us have been able to enjoy that kind of living, but can we do so beyond that, right? Can we actually connect and, and be able to build relationships and establish support? And part of the reason I bring that up too is, um, you know, I, I see pretty much daily online and in person, Black women do that. That is one thing and that I will definitely extend to them, uh, that they do well with one another. Um, but there's definitely a rationale for that. I mean, there, there's a certain level of access that uh, many have been able to achieve that kind of um, lubricate the wheels to allow for that kind of connection. But it's a, it's a constant. And I'll tell you what I mean. When I run into incoming students in their first year to women doing their master's degrees at Fresno State, and I ask them what they're majoring in, what they're planning to do. From business to nursing to, you know, uh, mass communication, I would say 75% of them will tell me what they plan to do is specifically designed to improve the quality of life for other Black women and girls. They'll set up programs, they'll set up organizations, even organizations that aren't even necessary. You know, I mean, I, it, and I'm, I say that because, you know, when I ask them if they've actually checked into the data about whether or not that's a service that's required, most of them haven't. It, it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction that whatever's going to be done, they're going to fixate it toward other Black women and girls. Um, and I've, I've seen this, again, online and in person. I've seen, you know, single mothers whose sons are failing out of school, homeless, all kinds of situations, but they'll set up organizations for girls to improve the quality of education. But when I run across the statistics to them and say, look, you, you do realize that, you know, black girls are actually doing quite well educationally in terms of, you know, being the largest represented demographic and, you know, enrolled in higher ed. They just kind of look at you. But I'm looking at people who are setting up stores and, and setting up organizations that are fixated at helping girls while having boys in their homes who are suffering and not doing well. And I'm saying, OK. You know, it, it, there's definitely an idea in place um, that I see them implementing over and over and over again. Um, I, I think I was I posted an article a couple months ago about a program to loan money to women to start small businesses. You know, a program for Black women. It was you know, there's those kind of pro educational programs, academic programs. Uh, it, it, you you name it. You know, whatever they're into, there's a framework for that that they are creating to expand, to support other black girls. 
even when they have young boys at home. But am I seeing those programs for boys? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And and I think it's definitely time that, you know, we begin to ask those questions because um, I'm concerned about where this goes if we don't. I'm concerned about where this goes if we don't. Um, forgive me. I'm, I'm still getting used to going back and forth to the chat. Uh, so let me see. There's a bunch of discussions going on that I'm catching up on. I apologize. Um, that's my boy Ian in there. Black men are told to do for self and even when we're homeless. Indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that's one of the things I notice, you know, with black males. The idea is that their success or failure is individually based, most particularly their failure, whereas black women's success is more of a collective dynamic. Right. So, you know, when you start to talk about black girl magic, this is a representation of black men, black women's natural qualities, whereas, you know, black men's you know, failure is just a, somewhat of an individual problem that they need to kind of go work on. Um, so that said, you know, it, it's it's definitely something that we need to be able to establish a new conversation about, um, because at the end of the day. I don't see anybody prioritizing black men without hesitation or apology the way I see other groups doing so for themselves. Right. I don't see it happening. I don't see people um, automatically jumping to the defense of black men. As a matter, as a matter of fact, if you post an article that talks about a particular black male who's killed somebody who may have raped or just been accused of it. You'll see all kinds of reactions from people. Now for men, black men themselves, what you'll see is people say, well, he may be guilty. He may have done this. You know, I can't stand guys like that. You know, you'll have a, a, a series of responses from black men. Post an article about a woman who's raped somebody or who's been the aggressor in some kind of situation and watch the almost automatic response be to defend her. Watch. And I've done this many a time. Those of you that follow me on social media, you know, I post about women teachers or women who have uh, who've been the aggressors and violated young boys. And we all know the article titles very rarely mention rape. Um, but what I notice in the comment sections is that women will automatically defend. And this is almost a cross. This is no, not almost. This is a cross race. There's a very small percentage of women that will come in and just say straight out, this is foul. She needs to go to jail. There will always be a question of, well, what did she experience? How was she violated? What took place in her life that brought her to hurt somebody else in this way? None of those questions get asked about black men, men in general, but especially black men. None of them. And if you actually begin to ask those questions, the first statement made is that you're a misogynist. You're a sexist of some sort. You know, I wrote a piece on my blog. And the reason most of my pieces are on my blog is that, you know, it, it's for established journals. It, you know, they're usually feminist in orientation. So if you have a non-feminist approach, it's not received well. But I wrote a piece on my blog about R. Kelly. And I basically did in that piece what I hear women do uh, for other women all the time. I asked the question, what happened to R. Kelly? Now, I'm not defending what he may or may not have done. I am defending uh, in this sense, the question of assuming guilt without actually having assessed what's happened or seen anything verified, or uh, at the end of the day, assessing what took place with him, right? So we know he was raped by his sister growing up and apparently a man somewhere in the community. I've almost not heard that at all discussed as a factor in his behavior. That doesn't defend what he did, but it's a factor. But it's it, it's considered irrelevant. But again, when I post on nuns who violated boys in the Catholic Church, when I post on teachers, even professors, even judges, right? When I post on women who are in positions of authority, prison guards, right, who are violating men and boys, and sometimes in unprecedented numbers, there's not a framework for us to really contemplate female evil or guilt. We don't know how to do it as a collective. And to ask the question about it, you're automatically dismissed. But to take that a step further, you know, there's a level of nuance and humanity, humanity afforded to women and girls that we don't know how to afford to men and boys. And even other men will shame you for asking that question. Why is there no humanity extended to young men? Why is it we can't ask what happened to him? What are the environmental and ecological factors that contribute to, to men's behavior? 
right? Matter of fact, I just posted, posted an article a couple of days ago about why we're not incensed that the majority of the people incarcerated are men. You know, it, it, and I said this before, when I talked about um, the whole idea of incarceration, when I learned about it in grad school, they would always give you the rates of incarceration. It actually took till several years after grad school before I had ever seen a chart that just gave me the raw numbers. And at the time, it was like 220,000 women incarcerated and, and two and a half you know, million men. I'd never seen that until after graduate school. Nobody had actually showed me that. And I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. How do I go through graduate school through gender studies, in fact, as one of the factors? I did my doctorate in cultural studies and, and I did a certificate in Africana studies along with that um, at Claremont Graduate University. I did a master's degree at Temple and then I did two undergraduate degrees in Africana studies and philosophy at Cal State Dominguez. And I took gender studies courses all throughout from 1992 to 2008. At no point did anyone ever put forth a chart that actually showed the raw numbers of men and women? Not, I, you know, I can't, I casually assume there were more men in prison, but I didn't assume the difference was that great. And, and to, to, to add, you know, insult to injury, just, I think it was last night, I had a debate on one of my posts with a woman that came into the comment section and the post was on, I think it was the article, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the article that was actually talking about why we're not incensed that men are in prison and to the degrees they are. And she immediately came in talking about the rates, the rates of incarceration and how they're tipped in, in, to women's detriment and, and how, you know, how we need to pay attention to that. I just put up one chart, you know, I, matter of fact, um, I think I have it here. I just put up one chart just kind of showing, um, yeah. It's the one from the Griot. You all have probably seen it. Um, let's see. Oh, okay, here we go. Oh, that's weird. It's still not letting me show it. All right, so let me try it another way here. I'll show the entire screen, and then I will post it up. So you guys have seen this chart. I just posted that. That was it. You know? Um, that was it. I just posted that just so we could actually put the context in the conversation into context. So shout out to Antonio Moore as far as that. I appreciate his work on that. And then from there, there was, oh yeah, well, that's a good point. Um, we definitely need to, to think about how many men are in prison. But if you didn't know, you, you, the conversation would have been over with a shaming tactic about how you don't we don't focus enough on women. And it's not to say we shouldn't. It's simply to say that if something is is is, is a problem specifically for uh, men, then we should be able to call that out. We should be able to say that very directly. Um, and it's it's shamed if we do. It's considered a negative, which is something that. I take issue with. Um, I'm hoping everything is still connected uh, because the comments are going on the YouTube page, but here in StreamYard it isn't. And so let me know if you guys can hear me. Can you guys, uh, someone type one in the chat if, if, you, if I'm still connected. Uh, because the, literally the comment section on StreamYard is frozen, but it looks like it's still going. Okay, good. Thank you, Tarian. I just need to know it was still going through. Um, all right. So getting to the conversation of actually talking about brotherhood, as I was saying, I, I, it, it, we know how to do it on small levels, but we're very siloed. And I think we need to broaden that. We need to expand that and actually be able to establish a code. A code that 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 allows for us to actually be able to support one another uh, in business, to be able to support one another in, in in social dynamics, to be able to be a resource to one another, uh, even on day to day matters. You you guys know I've I've interviewed a number of psychologists on my show, and we talk about black male depression. And one of the the con most consistent factors with black male depression that we see is black males that are completely isolated, which I think. Is, is, is actually quite common. And I think many of us actually kind of expect that that's going to be our lot in life. Um, we expect to be siloed. We expect to be you know, singularly out there with no support. 
Uh, and that becomes a part of how we identify masculinity. Meanwhile, um, what we see in our community, particular to you know families and women in particular, is, is the opposite. One of the things I talk about in my work is is you know the kind of gynopotestal relationships I've seen. Um, so I'm, I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I, I met a woman on a dating app, and we got together uh, to have breakfast. Um, and suffice it to say, yeah, I, I learned what catfishing meant. I didn't know what catfishing meant. Anyway. Uh, putting that aside, we, we had a conversation. One thing she shared with me is that she was she was in her, I think she was in her 40s. She lived a couple of houses down from her mother who lived a couple of houses down or who actually she lived. The grandmother lived with her mother. Her mother lived a couple of houses down from her. Her daughter had had bought a house, a couple of houses down from her. They, you know, all of them had children, but there were no men in the family. So what you had is this small kind of staggered community of women that were in close proximity to each other, each of whom had their own households with children. And there was a type of hierarchy um, amongst them. And if any of them actually in, engaged men, dated men, even attempted to marry men, those men didn't stay long. And of course, that was dismissed as, you know, these men's, you know, poor behavior or whatever. But the point I'm getting at in that dynamic is they had these communities of women that supported each other and was actually, in my opinion, would repel men from participating to any great degree. Right. And and yet the men that she was talking about that she had dated, that her daughter had dated and even her mother had dated were all men that lived on by themselves on their own. Um and had very little connection in any kind of formal sense uh, with anybody else. And it got me thinking about the ways in which exactly LAR movement, um, it's definitely a feminist dynamic. Um, it got me thinking, <laughs> Ian called it a coven. <laughs> it got me thinking about the ways in which uh, there's a kind of natural framework uh, that's considered you know, par for the course in terms of them connecting and resourcing and supporting one another, uh, but not necessarily one that I've seen for Black men. And I think we need to establish a new level of brotherhood, a new level of connection. And this is why I started 220 by actually having a new conversation about happiness with, uh, with Sarah, if you haven't seen that video. It's not a happiness that's rooted in you know, what we own, what we can attain or even where we can travel to. It's a happiness that is rooted in disconnecting from not only materiality, but from pleasing other people as a reflection of our sense of value. Stepping away from that as a definition of happiness is a first step. My second question of this 220 year is, can we move not only with a new definition of happiness, but a new sense of brotherhood? Can we establish that? You know what I mean? And one example of that I'm seeing in the chat when Dr. Tommy Curry came in here and peace to BGS. Thank you for posting his link for uh, for his book as well as Foster's. Can we buy his book? Can we support black male content makers? I see Artisan in here, um, Juan Valdez, BGS. Can we support? Can we can we provide that as a foundation, not as just something we randomly do, but as a foundation of behavior? where Black men don't have to be siloed out here operating on their own. And when they come into trouble, whether it be, um, you know, in terms of employment, whether it be starting a new business, whether it be police, or whether it be health, can we offer support to one another? There was a brother that died here in Fresno last month, December, um, died in his house, in his apartment by himself, and was there, if I'm not mistaken, for three weeks before anybody found him. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Black men actually being able to count on other Black men as a resource on a variety of levels. And I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting that today is an exhaustive discussion on how that can be. I think we can actually set up a, a number of discussions on that. I'm merely posing the question. Because I think it's, it's definitely past time that we learn to do it. And, and Tommy has been pushing that in the academy. Do you know he actually has to ask Black men to purposely cite from other Black men in terms of research? Because it's not something that we're socialized to do, right? It, it, but if you even go look at Black feminist research, they cite, cite from one another all the time, even if the arguments are highly questionable and problematic. But 
we have, you know, brothers in, in many of these spaces, but many, much of the time they're operating alone. That's one of the reasons Dr. Uh, Neil and I, you know, got cool. Cause when I first met him, he was very much like me out at Wake Forest. He's by himself doing the work, you know, me at Fresno state, I'm bringing, look, when I mentioned a, mo- a while ago that I was bringing hip hop artists, classic hip hop artists to Fresno, let me qualify that by saying the campus was not amenable to that. They were not supportive of it. One of the things they talked about is how they had trouble finding black and Latino men that they could recruit to come to the, the university. But I had a, what 600 people come see uh, KRS-One in one venue just for one occasion. He came, you know, he did several different things while he was out. But just one, there were 600 people that came. The majority were black and Latino males. And the campus was hostile for even, I tried to get them to set up a booth to you know, recruit these young men to come to the university. They didn't want nothing to do with it. You know, The police department was highly hostile to what I was trying to do, right? I'm out there by myself trying to do this, trying to mentor young men, trying to set up organizations, trying to set up classes. But being able to develop a collective approach even beyond the campus, you know, nationally. I mean, this is something that uh, Dr. Oshan Gadsden and I talked about a few weeks ago, where he was saying we might actually be able, he wanted to have um, kind of city to city uh, open discussions, particular to men, about how we can network. I'm in full agreement with that, but I don't really care what form it takes, but that it takes form. I'm not trying to dictate what that needs to look like. I'm asking the question so it can come out of this discussion and we can frame, you know, whatever it might look like. But it needs to happen. And I think it is on certain levels. I mean, in the last 10 years in social media, I'm seeing black men of all stripes having conversations I've never seen before. But I think it needs to be taken to the next level. We need to be able to coordinate this and actually concretize it, crystallize it, put it into some kind of form that has structure. And I think it's necessary because this is a time where we have unprecedented access to one another that we haven't had before. And I definitely hope that we can begin to do that. Um, Put some suggestions in the chat. You know, I'm going to definitely be able to go through this after we get off. Like I said, I'm only I was only going to do an hour. My my weekly show is about an hour um, every week now. I do an hour on my online radio show on Interlight Radio, Black-owned business I'm supporting. Uh, And then I post uh, the live show to YouTube after it's over. Uh, And then alternative weeks, second and fourth Wednesdays, I come here on video from my little, you know, small little home office um, and and try and do put some words out there in this format. So I'm going to be here once a week. Please, you know, I hope you guys can help support uh, if you can. Because uh, I don't know, you know, why YouTube is is refusing to monetize me. I, I'm not losing any sleep over it, because at the end of the day, I'm really here to just really provide brothers with some information that I hope arms you against uh, what we experience. Sometimes in our own communities, sometimes at large. I, I'm hoping to provide some type of information on every show, whether it be a, a you know, some kind of data, some kind of idea, some kind of concept, or a guest who has some ideas that I think are relevant. Uh, or discussion in general, but I'm I'm only here because I I want to provide some kind of resource to my brothers because I can say I love black men, I love us, I love us from newborn to elders. I have nothing but a great deep well of respect for brothers. Once once I came of age to understand what exactly we're up against and what we do despite that, my love for black men is is cold at this point. So. You know, for me, I just want to see things, you know, go to the next level because I'm really starting to understand that nobody else is coming. And I really hope we can push to actually connect with one another uh, and move past the bickering, the constant, you know, the the tearing down of one another. I mean, there's, there's a certain level of competition that's just, you know, goes along with testosterone. It is what it is. We make each other stronger. But I think at the same time, that can become highly problematic if we don't know how to do that in any other other kind of way. Um, And we need to, because it's time. So it's, um, oh, uh, the Love Lounge. Appreciate that on the shirt. Uh, You know, I don't know. Y'all, I I have a whole collection of Negro League baseball, you know, that I try to support brothers. 
Um, just because again, you know, I, I know what those brothers were up against and they never got their due. So again, another way of trying to support black men, however that comes out. So anyway, um, not going to hold you guys long BGS. Uh, uh, there's a number of y'all in the chat. I really appreciate the support. Um, especially to, you know, those that come over. Uh, from the Manosphere and have been supportive of me for the last few years. You guys are, are probably one of the main motivations for me even coming up on here. Ian, Grinch, LAR, all y'all brothers. I, I really can't tell you enough how much I appreciate this. Uh, I just want to see the conversations that I've seen you guys having for the last few years expand to the next level. And, and then the work that people like Tommy Curry, Ronald Neal, O'Shawn Gadsden, brothers like that are doing in the academy. I want to see that connect with what I'm seeing brothers doing online because it's time. It's time that we connected. It's time we, we shore up these resources with one another. And it's time that we are fucking unapologetic about supporting the upliftment of black men because it's necessary. All right. So y'all have a good night. Thank you for engaging me. I'm going to leave this up, obviously. So please continue to put comments, ideas in the comment section if you, you know, about what we can do, how we can frame it, what your ideas, and I'd appreciate it. Uh, definitely shout me out. You can you can friend me on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, just look up Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Please make sure you subscribe here as well on YouTube. However long they have me out, I, I don't really know what to expect with that. But nothing but respect to you, brothers. Thank you for, for entertaining me and engaging me in this conversation. And we'll probably see in the next week if we what kind of uh, discussion we can have, um, probably a live stream of some sort. So I'll let you guys know uh, based on what you say in the chat and what we come to develop. All right. So y'all have a good night. Peace.